turn in your Bibles to Psalm 22. Psalm 22. As you're turning there, let me uh, just ask, we'll uh, remember in prayer, uh, Debbie uh, this morning is uh, not feeling well, Debbie Harrington, and Frank uh, took her over to Watson. Her blood pressure was really, I think it was 186 over 117, so that's pretty, pretty high up there. Now, I know living with Frank... Uh, but no, all, all seriousness, uh, uh, but seems to be doing fine. But uh, obviously, we want to keep her in prayer. My wife um, decided she wanted to hear Charles Stanley this morning. So she's not, no, she's not feeling well. I'm just kidding you. Even though she did ask me what channel he was on. I don't know what that means, but no. But she's not feeling well. I've had a head cold all week, and, uh, and I thought she should be blessed by having it, and she she decided she but she got a little worse than me. So this morning she uh, when I uh, went in there and I said, "Do you know what time it is?" <laughs> like, you know, I usually get up a little earlier, right, Austin? I get up a little. We had a little surprise one morning. The youth were doing something, and they weren't surprised to see me out while it was still dark. But uh, but I was so I went in there to uh, make sure she was like knew what time it was, because we have this, you have a routine, you know, if you have a routine on Sunday, sometimes we'll turn on, listen to different people, and I can tell that when David Jeremiah or whoever's on ends, I know that, all right, what I need to get going, you know, there's a routine, take the dog out, check the, you know, do all those things, but she didn't feel well, and thankfully, this is a credit to our great worship team that, um, we have such a wonderful worship team that could just bless us, and, and she would be the first to say, not miss a beat. So thank you, Melissa, and for filling in as, uh, this morning, and Teresa, and uh, the whole team, everybody does. Yeah, yeah, amen. Give, give thanks for them. All right. Well, this morning, turn to Psalm 22, Psalm 22, and this morning, the title of the message is The Crucified Messiah, the crucified Messiah. And uh, this morning, as we just prepare our hearts, I wanted to open the word and uh, prepare ourselves as we uh, partake of the Lord's table in just a moment. The worship team will come back up and serve us and leading us in worship in a little bit, and we'll receive communion together. Uh, I always date myself when I talk about TV shows. But I remember being a kid, there was this television show that I found fascinating. Uh, I don't see it on the reruns anywhere or MeTV or some of those old people channels, as my sons call it, um, called The Time Tunnel. Does anybody remember that TV show? And, and it was this, it was, uh, you know, somewhere in the late 60s, and they could, they had this, uh, you know, military type that, uh, installation, but they had developed a time tunnel, and these certain individuals could get into the time tunnel and go back in time, and they would show up during the Civil War and thwart something, or or somewhere at Lincoln's assassination, or go back in the days of Caesar or whatever, and it was just, you know, science fiction, uh, fun, craziness. But I thought if I had a time machine... There's a lot of places I'd like to go, but one place I definitely would like to listen in on, it was a Sunday morning 2,000 years ago on a dusty road between Jerusalem and the village of Emmaus. 
And you may uh, recall that uh, in a moment we'll look at that scripture, but on that occasion 2,000 years ago, two men were walking on the day that Jesus was resurrected from the dead, when the risen Savior came alongside of them and joined them. And they didn't recognize him at first, uh, but they explained to him their confusion over the events that had just taken place concerning the crucifixion of the Messiah. And Jesus, the day of Sunday, the Lord's day of resurrection, and uh, we'll have Luke, uh, if you want to open your, you don't have to open it, it'll be on the screen, stay in Psalm 22. But in Luke chapter 24, we'll pick it up, where Jesus said to them, Luke 24, verse 25 and 27, and he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. That's the Old Testament. Remember, the New Testament wasn't even developed yet. Was it not necessary? I'd underline necessary. It wasn't chance, it wasn't an accident. It wasn't things got out of control, but Jesus said, was it not necessary that the Christ, Christos is Greek for the Hebrew Messiah, was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and enter into his glory, telling them that the crucifixion was part of the Old Testament plan that was very clear. In fact, he says, verse 27 And beginning with Moses, that's the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah, uh, the Pentateuch, Penta, Pentagon, Pentagram, five, the five books of Moses, the Pentateuch, beginning with Moses, the Torah, and all the prophets, that's shorthand for the Old Testament, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning Himself, And he reiterates this a little further down in verse 44, where he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that, notice what it says, everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. That's the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, must be fulfilled. And so I love that, and I, I know that I use that and think about that a lot because it just reminds me that the Bible that the New Testament had, that, that the disciples, Paul, uh, while the, we have the New Covenant, the New Testament, but the Old Testament Scriptures were not just some separated, disconnected part to the New Testament But it was God's revelation that unfolded uh, what we now have in fuller understanding by the new covenant. So as we go back and look at the Old Testament, the Old Covenant scriptures, we have insights that the Old Testament prophets and people even during New Testament times, many that did not have or understand because we have the fuller, more complete revelation of the new covenant uh, in Christ. Amen? You with me so far? All right? If there had been tape recorders or some way to uh, have that, wouldn't that have been a fascinating uh, lesson to have Jesus provide 
an Old Testament study of all those things concerning himself. Wouldn't that have been wonderful to hear? And I think it's a reasonable assumption that it says in all the scriptures, all the, the you know, again, uh, I don't necessarily know if that was a line upon line, but at least the sweep of the Old Covenant scriptures, it would probably be a, a reasonable assumption because of the significance of Psalm 22 that Jesus might have indeed included uh, Psalm 22. We know it says that he went through the Psalms, or at least those that spoke to him. There's roughly maybe 14, 15 that we understand as directly related to what we call messianic Psalms that are directly speaking prophetically of the coming Messiah, that Psalm 22 would have been in that lesson on that day. Would have been a great teaching. So as we look at Psalm 22, as I've said in uh, other passages, even in our Wednesday night study on the prophets, you understand that, that when we talk about Scripture in the Old Testament that is prophecy or prophetic or uh, messianic, messianic being it speaks about the coming Messiah, that many of those passages, or virtually all of them for the most part, uh, you interpret them on two levels. There's an immediate context of the situation that it's speaking to, but many of those scriptures that we understand as prophetic have a secondary, or I don't mean secondary in a subway, I just mean they have a another aspect in which they are future or prophetic. Now, we can't just go through and make up stuff and say, oh, that's a prophetic scripture. That's, a, you know, that's speaking of the future. You know, There's a lot of people that kind of love the Old Testament, and they just spiritualize everything. You're like, where do you get that from? You know, uh, the way that we do that so that we stay in harmony is a prophetic scripture is only deemed prophetic if it is connected and used in the New Testament. You with me? That's how we, we understand that link. Otherwise, we just, we just kind of make it up. You know, We say, well, that sounds interesting. I remember hearing a sermon on David and Goliath, and remember David chose five smooth stones? And a whole sermon built around that those five stones represented represented the uh, fivefold ministry of apostle, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. That ain't what that means. That has nothing to do with anything. Sounded good. It was a lot of oohs and ahs, but it was like I'm sitting there like, sorry. You, you know, I mean, well, you know, so, so you have to be, if you want to be line upon line, because see, my creativity with Scripture is not authoritative. My massaging it to make it more, ooh, wow, never heard that before. There's some people that almost, you know, have to, if they get up to preach, they want to say something that nobody in 2,000 years has ever said. Be careful of people like that, okay? I mean, be careful. Now, there's, there's contemporary application. I think you get that, right? But as far as saying something that nobody's ever heard of before, that this is what this means, and I've heard a lot of sermons that, like, Okay, well, don't know where you pulled that out of. Doesn't make any, that's why you, we talk about hermeneutics. It wasn't a guy named Herman. But that's just kind of a big word that speaks of how 
what are some guidelines by how we interpret Scripture? It's not, again, it's not my ability to be creative and say something nobody's ever heard of before, but it's saying, what are some guidelines so that we make sure that the words that we read, the words that we speak, the words that I understand, I want to understand what Jesus said. I want to understand the words that the apostles said and what they meant when they wrote it and, 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 and gave it, Right? I'm interested in what, because that's what has authority, not my cute illustrations or uh, opinions. And that's always a, a constant battle. I pray, Lord, help me not to say stupid things that mix up the word. Because we're, I'm a human. You're a human. Help me to make sure that uh, I'm not fallible, right? You know that. At least a couple of, hey, I'm not. I, I, I mean, uh, or, no, no, I am fallible. Now I understand your confusion. <laughs> Welcome to cult day. <laughs> I am very fallible. Those of you in TV world, keep sending those cards and checks coming in. I am fallible. I am not infallible. I, I have lots of error in my life. I'm human, right? So, but the word, when we talk about the infallibility of the word, that's our authority, right? So, in other words, it can't be authoritative unless we understand what it means. So, saying all that to say, when we come to these passages that speak prophetically, uh, we, we apply certain understandings, and the beautiful thing about saying, well, this speaks about the Messiah, is because we have the connection of the New Testament that helps us do that, all right? So the Old Testament prophetic scriptures, the immediate context was written by David, was David. Now, as you read Psalm 22 on your own, and we're not going to go through it all because we don't have time, but you realize early on by reading it that David is speaking and writing of things that are beyond him, things that he never personally experienced himself. So by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in understanding this, we understand that David was writing this psalm, whether it was a song of worship, whether it was a prayer, a lament, however different ways we understand those things. But under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, David was writing of his personal experience and interaction between him and worshiping God, but the Holy Spirit was taking his words, his experience, and Peter writes in 2 Peter 1.21, for no prophecy was produced by the will of man, but men like David spoke from God, and here's the key, as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. I don't think David said, wow, I just wrote a messianic psalm. Now, there may have been things, that, again, later that came out, but David was writing this firsthand account, but the Holy Spirit had inspired his words and his experience so that at the final product, we have Scripture that is speaking future. You with me? Because I talk longer if you get quiet. Uh, uh, <laughs> it's speaking future all right, of 
Messiah. So when we come to Psalm 22, that's why we need to understand it as the crucified Messiah. Now, if you have your Bibles open to Psalm 22, and then as I said, uh, we're just going to deal with just looking at uh, the first part of this, verse 18 verses or first 20 verses, but we're not going to go in a lot of detail of those. But as you read the psalm, and I hope that on Sunday when you come in and you leave and you go back, whether it's First John or uh, whatever it is that we do in here, that when you come back to this and you open it, you're like, oh, okay, now I have some understanding here. So what, as I read it, things become more meaningful and I have some understanding. So if you look in your Bibles, uh, the first 18 verses, there's almost like three parts to this first the psalm uh, in the first 18 verses. And what you have is a kind of a pattern, a cycle. Uh, for example, the first cycles in the first two verses where you have, for lack of a better word, a complaint to God. And then verse 3 and 5, a words of confidence in God. Then you have a second cycle, verse 6 and 8, of a complaint against God. And verses 9 through 11, uh, confidence or petition to God. And the third, third cycle in verses 12 through 18 is you have this complaint, but then verses 19 through 21, confidence. So this morning, as we prepare ourselves, I want us to look at, uh, for lack of a better term, these complaint sections or these sections in which the, the writer uh, is, is crying out to God and for us to see in this prophetic messianic psalm, preparing ourselves for the Lord's tabor, table, boy, my mouth, that's what happens when you take cold medicine at 7 o'clock in the morning, you know, you're, you're, you're infallible and you can't speak, but, uh, but as we look at this, I want us to look at this psalm and help us to see in this prophetic messianic psalm uh, some things about Christ's sufferings on the cross. Isn't that amazing that a psalm written maybe six, seven hundred years before the actual event provides us some uh, insight on the cross? The New Testament, is, uh, the Old Testament, as Jesus said, is full of Jesus. And when you begin to see Jesus and you begin to understand Christ in the Old Testament, then all of a sudden these patterns and these events aren't just nice random Sunday school flannel graph stories with moralistic lessons of how to slay your giants. Hello? But you understand the significance in the timeline that beginning from Genesis 3.15... God was bringing forth the, the serpent crusher. He was bringing forth Messiah who would come and bear the weight of our sin and redeem a people. So notice several of these. There's five of them that I just want us to highlight this morning from Psalm 22. And hopefully my mouth will work, all right? Number one, in Psalm 22, verse 1, of what happened to Christ on the cross is he was forsaken by God, forsaken by God. My God, verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? 
In Matthew 27, 46, it's not on the screen, and your margin probably has it in your Bible, we remember when Jesus cried out in Aramaic, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is one of those areas in which uh, theologians do their best to try to give us some explanation, but this is a tremendous mystery uh, and that is unknown on so many levels that no one can really know what was involved in God the Father forsaking Jesus during those hours of darkness on the cross. That's a mystery to truly understand that. We know, because Scripture teaches, that Jesus bore God's curse that was upon the world because of sin. Jesus bore that. God in His holiness, again, using human language, okay, turned His back, turned His back. That's, that helps us understand in human language what is this infinite mystery of God, we have to put in language that we can understand. So that's pictured of God turning his back upon his son who bore the weight of this sin. Teresa mentioned and quoted about Moses wanting to encounter God's glory, his holiness, his godness. And God says, you can't handle my godness you can't handle my glory. You remember Isaiah in Isaiah 6, when, he, when Isaiah had that vision of the holiness of God, what was his reaction? I am undone. I am undone. For I am a man of unclean lips. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. I have a heart that cannot stand in the holiness of God. God's holiness in this picture of forsaking his son in this moment, that Jesus, the spotless lamb of God, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, who knew no sin, but was what? Made sin on our behalf. Forsaken by God the Father. The agony. Now see, again, we have such, to try to put it in our understanding because we can't understand, because we have never experienced on any level the perfect fellowship that God the Father and God the Son in that triune Godhead for all eternity has experienced and enjoyed. We, don't even, we can't even fathom that. We put words on it, but we really can't try to put an understanding around that, that we have never shared God's holy nature in that type of way of the Father and the Son. So we can't even imagine the impact of Jesus becoming sin, bearing our sin, becoming sin. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. But yet, that is what happened on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's also, secondly, in Psalm 22, verse 2, verse 2, Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. 
His prayers, the Messiah's prayers, or his cries were not answered. Messiah is foreseen here prophetically crying out for, for, for deliverance from death. That if possible, remember Jesus prayed in the garden, if it were possible, let this cup, what? Pass from me, but not my will, but thy will be done. Uh, he was not delivered from death. He was not spared the cup, but he drank the cup. Listen to me. He drank the cup of God's wrath every drop for our behalf. And God the Father affirmed the acceptance of that sacrifice by delivering him and affirming him at the resurrection. But there's a third aspect, seeing Calvary 700 years before the actual event in listening and seeing the words of a Messiah. Thirdly, it says this Messiah was despised and mocked. Look at verse 6 through 8. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. He came to his own and his own, what? Knew him not. Verse 7, all who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. Quote, he trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. That's a mockery of words that they would say. But it's interesting that Jesus, or the Messiah, in this psalm, calls himself a worm and not a man. A worm is an object of weakness and scorn. There are no NFL teams called the worms. You have the bears. I'll leave it at that. No, there's worm. I mean, that's as low as low, right? But don't, don't just, let me give you a little wormology. You had a little wormology. Let me give you a little wormology. It's interesting that in the Hebrew, there's two primary words that are used for worm. This may come in handy someday. So, in Job, we won't look. We won't look at it. But Job refers to himself in seventeen fourteen and several other places that in his grief and depression, he refers to himself as a worm. And the Hebrew word. For that is rima or rima, which refers to the little, a just general word for worm or a maggot. But that is not the word in Psalm 22, verse 6. In the original Hebrew, the word translated worm in the Hebrew is tola'at. Tola'at in the Hebrew. And that does speak about a worm or a grub, but interpreters believe that it's referring to something more specific. Tola'at is also interpreted as a scarlet worm. 
crimson worm and believe that this possibly could be either what is the cochineal worm or some derivation of that worm, which is unique because it's the cochineal worm that produces a red dye when it is crushed. And the cochineal worm that produces a red dye when it is crushed was how they got the red dye in the building of the tabernacle that needed the red coloring of the coverings and veils. It wasn't they went down to Sherwin-Williams, but it was through this particular type of worm that when crushed produce a red substance that they could make into a dye. Do you think things like that are just random accidents? I don't think so. That's your wormology for the day. Jesus was crushed so that his blood, as we sang, might cover our sins. But also in the same point of being despised and mocked in verse 7 and 8, are the exact words and actions that were used by Jesus on the cross. Look at the verse 7 and 8. It'll be on the screen. Verse 7 and 8. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads and say, He who trusts the Lord, let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. They mocked his own claims. Remember at the cross, they mocked his claims. That, hey, if you are really the Son of God, come on down. Show us. Prove it. Now, you know what I think is interesting? Those who would think that somehow Jesus was part of this elaborate scheme and conspiracy to interweave all these events that somehow he could manufacture where he would be born. And, you know, in other words, to just manufacture these Old Testament prophecies that he could appear to be the fulfillment of these. How do you get your enemies to cooperate with your scheme? You with me? How do you get them to go in on the scheme and say, hey, boys, I need you to say these words. Because you remember Psalm 22? It's part, hey, don't mess up the plan. It's gotten me this far. How do you do that? Let alone other things. You don't. But it's interesting that these words would later be repeated at the crucifixion. Fourth, the picture of Messiah on the cross as our sin bearer, that Messiah was overpowered by ferocious men. Verse 12 through 13, many bulls, which is a picture of strength, encompasses me, strong bulls of Bashan, which that locale was noted for breeding strong animals, strong bulls. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. Just a picture. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and a roaring lion. Down to verse 16. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. You know, again, this psalm 
it's almost like we're getting an inside understanding of the Messiah on the cross in what he was experiencing, words that he was saying. His enemies are likened to ferocious animals, that that is what Messiah felt like as he hung upon the cross as the Jewish rulers and the political leaders snorted their ridicule and false accusations and mockery, even though the Bible says that he could have called 12 legions of angels, Matthew 26, 53. You know what a legion is roughly in the Roman army, a legion is 6,000. So the figure is he could have called, if 12 legions, that's roughly 72,000. Now again, don't get hung up on the number. It's just saying he could have, he could have emptied heaven he could have emptied heaven the bible says like a sheep he was led to the slaughter like a lamb before its shearer is silent so he messiah opened not his mouth and that's Philip quoting Isaiah 53 and Acts 8:32. But there's a last, fifth, is that Messiah went through the physical and emotional agony of crucifixion. I believe this is just one of those areas that give evidence to the, to the divine inspiration of Scripture, meaning that this is not a manufactured book, but this book, because it is God-breathed, 2 Timothy 3.16, that God, these words are accurate, reliable. These words are infallible. I'm fallible. I just want to make sure you don't leave here under the illusion, right? If I start wearing sunglasses and sitting in a big chair, run, okay? All right, so... I'm fallible, all right? (laughs) Crucifixion as a means of capital punishment or torturous capital punishment. It's interesting that 700 years before this mode of capital punishment was put into practice, it's interesting And fascinating that it is spoken of in this psalm. Wasn't even part of the uh, practice. Uh, Historians think that, that this practice of crucifixion, what was later perfected as a horrendous form of a torturous death, began with the uh, Persians, the Medes and the Persians. Uh, in the east. Uh, they see that Alexander the Great, the great conqueror, uh, used this as his way of uh, instilling intimidation and authority to enemies. But the Romans, historians say, they learned it from the Phoenicians, and they perfected its torture so that those who would be crucified would experience the most agonizing, torturous form of capital punishment and death. It was brutal, humiliating. It was a public form of execution meant 
to essentially say, sometimes like when you see in our day, you'll see uh, pictures of areas where ISIS has come in and they have bodies hanging in public of those who did not submit to the Islamic rule. That is meant to say, hey, you want to go your own way? Here's what will happen to you. It was meant as a form of intimidation and, hey, okay, I get the message, right? David, who is writing the human, the words here, out of his own psalm of worship, David never experienced crucifixion. He didn't even know about it as far as we know historically. So again, he's writing beyond his human level of understanding under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Verse 14, the Scripture speaking of Messiah at being crucified, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. Poured out like water points to the excessive perspiration and loss of fluids. Remember Jesus cried and said, I thirst? Bones out of joint. We know that one of the prophetic truths that was fulfilled is that not a bone of his body was broken, right? But yet the bones out of joint, not necessarily literally, but the, the, the agony of you having your body stretched out on a cross, my heart has turned to wax and melted, the heart struggling to supply the blood to the extremities. It was a horrendous death. Verse 15, my strength is dried up like pot shard, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. Pot shard, as the ESV says, is dried ceramic clay. In other words, it's just it's like dry clay. I'm so dried up, I'm brittle, I'm broken. Verse 16, for dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers, they have pierced, see it? Pierced my hands and feet. In your Bibles, you may have a marginal note, and sometimes that's those little those little, uh, those little letters above maybe certain words or scriptures, or if you have a study Bible, they probably have a note of this, that some Hebrew manuscripts of the Old Testament added or rendered it that my, pierced my hands and feet like a lion. Do you ever, did anybody see that little marginal note in your Bible, you know, and you know you had marginal notes. That's what those little things and numbers and scripture references all. So Calvin has an interesting explanation that he, through history, that we understand that the rabbis altered the text during the growth of the Christian church because they understood it to be such a direct connection prophetically, to the Messiah, Jesus, whose hands were and feet were pierced. So to kind of defang it and change it just slightly, that many believe that the rabbis added like a lion to say, well, that isn't what that's referring to. 
He's just saying he's been tied up or pierced like an animal. But that's not the understanding of the original. The original certainly was not altered and, again, found that interesting. Verse 17, the Messiah, I count all my bones, they stare and they gloat over me. People stare. This crucifixion, this execution was public. And look at verse 18. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. How would you get them to cooperate? How would you get those men that nailed you to the cross, how would you get them to cooperate on such a minute detail of the crucifixion that directly was written 700 years before. Do you see it? Are you alive? All right. That they gambled for his garments. We know that's exactly what happened. This is in Psalm 22. Speaking of the crucifixion of Messiah, now how should I respond? This morning in just a moment, not quite yet, but in a moment... We will respond by partaking of the elements of the Lord's table. How should I respond to this Messiah who suffered for me? Basically, I believe that we should see both the greatness of my own sin and the greatness of God's love for me not real complicated. That as I see how Messiah, someone has said, you want to know the depth of our sin? That it took no one less than the very Messiah, Son of God, to pay for my sin? It wasn't something you could work out. It wasn't something that given enough reincarnated lifetimes, you could work yourself out of this bad karma. No which is no such thing. But my sin was put on the cross. Romans 5.8 is on the screen. But notice Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates, proves, shows His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners. People will say, preacher, I love when they talk in the South. Preacher, <laughs> I just need to get my act together and I'm going to get in church. I say, well, good luck. Let me know how that comes out. Because you can't get your act together. Jesus, the Messiah, came for those whose act could never come together. Hopelessly lost. But while... We were yet sinners at the most offensive, disdainful, Christ died for us. Some of you know the artist Rembrandt. I started to put, his, put the painting up here, but you can Google it. The Dutch artist Rembrandt did a painting. I'd like to get a copy of it and put it in my office someday. It's a, I hope you do Google it. 
but he did a painting of the crucifixion, Rembrandt. And the focus of the painting is, shows Jesus being hoisted up on the cross by the Romans and those that were around the cross on that day. But this is what's fascinating of what Rembrandt, who was a Christian, did. Rembrandt, in this painting of them lifting the, the beams, the cross, hoisting the, the uh, crucified Jesus up on the cross for it to stand straight up, the painting, Rembrandt painted himself as one of the ones in that picture. So when you look at that painting, you see the Romans, you see the religious leaders, and then you see a man that doesn't fit. Kind of one of those French-type hats or one of those type of little, you know, artists wear. I don't know what they're called. But you clearly see a self-portrait of Rembrandt looking at you or whoever's looking at the painting. He put himself as one of the ones that is putting Christ on the cross. You see, if we don't understand that my sin was put upon him, then we really fundamentally can't understand preschool 101, the gospel. The more I grow as a Christian, And I asked Jesus into my life when I was 11 years old. Still on a journey. Not to get saved, but to grow in Him. Still on that journey. But the more I grow as a Christian, listen, the more I discover the greatness of God, but in that understanding of the greatness of God, I discover and learn new ways of how utterly wicked my heart is. The way to holiness is not thinking more highly of yourself. But it's realizing what a sinner you were and how until Jesus takes you home, takes me home, how sin will be the battle we fight till we draw our last breath. And what does that do? Does that cause me to despair? No. It causes me to cling to the cross more tightly, depend upon the merits of Jesus, that if you knew the wickedness of my heart, you wouldn't listen to me read a grocery list. I mean, if you know the depravity of my heart and my utter dependability of a Savior, not at 11, but at 59 and a half, I need Jesus. You need Jesus. You will always need Jesus.
I cling to the cross. I love John Newton, the writer of Amazing Grace. He said, I am a great sinner, but I have a great Savior. You see, that's not popular to talk about sin in our culture. We want Jesus as our CEO. Jesus who atoned for our success, our happiness, and well-being. That's the Jesus of American Christianity. Because it bases on the presumption that really you're, pretty, you're a pretty good person. You just need to do Jesus to give you a little boost of success. But you know what? Jesus said, he who is forgiven little loves little. And until we understand the depths, the depths and depravity and despair of our wicked, sinful hearts, we will never grasp the depth of what this Messiah foretold in Psalm 22 did for me. Let me close by just reading a quote from Charles Spurgeon, because you know no, no sermon is inspired unless you quote Charles Spurgeon. And it'll be on the screen. Listen to how Spurgeon put it. He's using the male terms, but that was that generation, so just that bothers you, just deal with it. He who has stood before his God, convicted and condemned, that's us, with the rope around his neck, is the man to weep for joy when he is pardoned. To hate the evil which has been forgiven him, and to live to the honor of the Redeemer by whose blood he has been cleansed. Until you realize that you were on the gallows with the hemp rope around your neck and were pardoned forever, then such a salvation is not sweet and wonderful. That's our Messiah. You know, one of the big fads, Christians love little trinkets and fads. Remember the WWJD bracelets? I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. But I think we ought to have another one. Not what would Jesus do, but WDJD. What did Jesus do? That we need to be reminded. And so this morning, I'm going to ask our worship team if they would, who's going to lead us here in this second part, if they would go ahead and begin to come. Jesus said, as he instituted what we understand as the Lord's Supper, remember Jesus said, do this in what? Remembrance. And as I've said, and I'll say, which if you were there, you'd be like, remembrance. How could we ever forget? But he knew our hearts, didn't he? He knew our propensity to trivialize not only our sin, but the sacrifice of Jesus. Do this in remembrance. We need remembrance. Remembrance.